There were some Christians in the first century church at Corinth that had begun believing the idea that there was no such thing as the resurrection from the dead. Now, for me to say that there were some people in the city of Corinth that didn't believe in a resurrection of the dead is no surprise at all. But there were Christians that were blood-bought worshipers of God that had put off this belief that there is a resurrection from the dead, uh, those that had been and sat under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. We learned last week that part of the reason for that was the influence of a group of Jewish zealots called the Judaizers that would follow Paul from place to place and would seek to undermine his message and say that he has some of it down, but not all of it down. And one part of that group of Judaizers were of the sect of the Sadducees, which were Jews that held the belief that there was no such thing as any resurrection at all, that we live in this life and that when we breathe our last, we close our eyes, we go to sleep, and that's it. That's the end of our existence. And so their influence had in some part affected some of the Christians that were there in Corinth. The other reason why that teaching, no resurrection, had taken root in Corinth is because that was really a very widely held belief amongst the Romans. Um, when Paul was in Athens, which was really just a couple of miles from the city of Corinth, and he preached there in the open square on Mars Hill, it says that the people gave attention to the things that Paul said and they listened to him all the way up until he brought up the resurrection of the dead. And at that point, it says that some of them mocked and others of them said, that's all for today. That's about all we can handle. We'll hear you again uh, uh, on this matter sometime in the future. But it was so contrary to Roman culture, this whole concept of a resurrection, that it was easy for those in Corinth to ascribe to that belief that, hey, that makes sense to us that there would be no resurrection. And the philosophy of it had crept into the church to a degree that where Paul now in this chapter needs to address the fact and bring it to the forefront and not only prove that there actually is a resurrection, but also explain why that is a paramount and essential tenet of the Christian faith. Why is it that we must believe in a resurrection in order for the Christian message to be the Christian message. And so the first half of the chapter, which we looked at last week, the apostle goes to no small lengths to prove beyond any shadow of scriptural uh, truth or fact that there is in fact a resurrection. He says that if you want to ascribe to this belief that there is none, then you first of all have to change the gospel message. Because the gospel message is a resurrection message. Secondly, you'll have to ignore the testimony of the eyewitnesses that saw Jesus after it was that he was raised from the dead. Third, you'll have to disregard the teachings and the testimony of Jesus Christ himself, the very Savior that you're putting your faith in. You'll have to throw off that faith because he himself said that he would rise from the dead and that there was, in fact, a resurrection. Fourthly, you, if you want to believe this, will have to um, acknowledge and admit that you are following a faith that cannot ultimately save you, which makes absolutely no sense at all. Because if your faith doesn't have an answer to the finality of death, then your faith 
isn't worth anything because that's the biggest problem that man has. And so the final analysis that Paul makes in proving this point to the Corinthians is that if there is no resurrection, then we have no better hope in this life than that we should eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. So if there's no resurrection, then the best that we can do in this life is to eke out every last bit of pleasure that we can from it and hope that he who dies with the most toys really does win. And so Paul says it is a completely foolish belief for a Christian to ascribe to the, to the, to the system that there is no resurrection from the dead. And thus he has proved uh, that it is important and that it is factual and that it is real. Now, the second half of the chapter, where we resume tonight, he leaves off proving the resurrection, and now he digs into the technical side of things that most of us that already believe it, that didn't need the proof, these are the questions now that we would have concerning this issue of the resurrection. And so beginning in verse 35, Paul asks two rhetorical questions, and now he's going to spend the rest of the chapter answering those two questions. And so we read in verse 35. He says, but some man will say, how are the dead raised up? That's the first question. How does this whole resurrection deal work? And question number two, with what body do they come? So how does the resurrection of the dead work? And what kind of bodies can we expect to have once we do resurrect from the dead? Because I've seen some people that once they died, they needed to die. And we don't want to bring that back to life again. So what kind of body are we, are we going to walk into eternity with, you know, you know, fake hips and limps and, you know, skin sagging off of our bodies and leprosy or whatever it is that takes us when we finally go home for the, the, the final time? How is all this going to work? So the apostle now begins to answer those questions as we move through the verses. Now he still spends very little time dealing with the first uh, question because he doesn't know the answer and neither do we. He says there in verse 36, he says, Thou fool, that which you sow is not quickened or made alive except it die. Now, Paul was not calling them fools here. You're like, Paul, is that sin? I mean, didn't we just hear Sunday that someone said, Jesus said that if you say thou fool, you know, to someone that you're in danger. Is that what he's doing here? Is he called? No, no. The idea is that he's saying to them, that's a foolish question. That it's a foolish question to ask, um, how are the dead raised up? And, And the reason why that's a foolish question is because nobody knows the answer to that until they go through it. Until you experience resurrection for yourself, you're not going to know what that's like. You could see it happen, and people had seen it happen. They'd seen Lazarus risen from the dead in the days of Jesus, when Jesus spoke from outside the tomb and called him forth. They had seen that Jesus had risen from the dead. And so they knew that it happened, but how it happens, how the dead are raised up, other than we know that it's the Holy Spirit's work to bring back to life what has ceased to live, We don't know exactly how it works. Only God knows it. But we do know one thing. We know that you have to die first in order to be raised back to life. And so that's what Paul says. That which you sow is not made alive, except it first die. And so once you die, you'll find out exactly how this works. Second question, though, is a good one. Second question is with what kind of body do they come? Now, let me read a small passage here where Paul gives the answer to that. And then we'll look at what he says. He says in verse 37, and he says, on top of that, 
that which you sow, you sow not that body that shall be, but bare grain. It may chance be wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as it has pleased him and to every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies, that's heavenly bodies, and bodies terrestrial, that is earthly bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star differeth from another star in glory. And then just the first part of verse 42, he says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. Got it? Okay, good. It's clear. Let's move on. (laughs) That's the answer to the question. But essentially what the apostle Paul does here is that he gives them six things, uh, six facts about the bodies that we will come with or six uh, um, characteristics concerning this resurrection that we're uh, going to face there in those verses that, that answer that question with what kind of body do they come. And the first thing that he tells them in verse 37 is concerning seeds. And if you look at that again, he says, um, that which you sow, you sow not the body that will be, but bear grain. And it may chance be wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as it has pleased him. In other words, we all, we all understand this. You know, we, um, we, we, go, we, we plant gardens this time of year and we go to Adams or wherever and we buy a bag of seeds and we take those seeds in our hand and, and based upon the picture on the front of that package, uh, we, we know what we're going to get. But once we open the package and we hold those seeds in our hand, just by looking at those seeds, we have absolutely no idea what it is that's going to spring up out of the ground. We sow it as one thing, and then once it germinates and that seed is dead in in the ground, and now it comes back to life, it's resurrected, it grows into something completely different. And so here's the first thing that the Apostle Paul says about our resurrection body. And that is, that is different as seed is to what grows out of that seed. So different will our bodies be then from what they are now. And so if you can imagine just that difference in your mind for just a moment, the difference between a seed and the crop that springs out of the seed, that will be the vastness of the difference between what we are and what we will one day be. In John chapter 14, when Jesus was just about to go to the cross and he was meeting together with his disciples for the last time, he was talking to them about his second coming and about the fact that he would be returning. And he said, you believe in God, believe also in me. And he said these words. He said, in my father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you. And he says, but I am going to prepare a place for you. And then he goes on to say, and if I go and prepare a place, I will come again, receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Now that verse has given Christians throughout the centuries the picture in their minds that when we get to heaven, Each of us will be given a mansion, much like what we see in some of the higher class areas of society or, you know, whatever, gold and, you know, crystals and ornaments and marble staircases and, you know, ivory pillars out front and this whole thing. And we'll just go around and each one of us is going to get a mansion someday when we go to heaven. 
I don't believe that that is what Jesus was talking about uh, because when we get to heaven, we're not going to need homes to dwell in. It will be a completely different type of environment. You say, well, then what is he talking about when he says a mansion? Well, every other place in the New Testament where our bodies are likened unto a dwelling place, we are called tents. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses that we will read a little bit later on in our study, he says that, that we will soon put off this tent. The scripture that I read in Romans earlier talks about this tabernacle. We that are in this tent or tabernacle do groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with the body which is yet to come. Peter, when writing to the churches, said, I will soon put off this tent this tabernacle. And always in the New Testament, our bodies are likened unto tents. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, a mansion. In my Father's house are many mansions. And so if you can imagine the difference between a tent and a mansion or a seed and what germinates and grows out of a seed, so will be the glorious difference between our bodies now versus our bodies then. Now, tents are temporary, they leak, they're inefficient, they're poorly insulated, they have a very short shelf life, and they do not accommodate well the needs that we have, do they? It's funny how many of you tonight, just on the way in, I asked how you're doing, and I think at least three people said terrible. (laughs) And then some ailment, you know, that's going on in your body. And I said, you're going to love tonight's Bible study because it is filled with hope as we wait for the upgrade that is yet to come. And so as the difference between seed and plant, so will be the difference between our bodies now and our bodies then. That which you sow is not what will be, but bare grain. The second thing that the Apostle Paul tells us concerning our bodies then is uh, in verse 38. He tells us there that God gives it a body as he sees fit. And here's what you need to know. This is what Paul's saying, is that whatever body you have once you are glorified and in heaven, It will be a body that God has specifically designed for you. It's his idea and his design and what he knows. And I believe that part of the glory of what we will enjoy in that moment when we receive those glorified bodies, whatever they are and in whatever expression or context they are for for each of us individually, it will reveal to us how incredibly well known we are by him. Have you thought about ever the things that you wish you could do that you can't? You know, I know that there are many talents and gifts or character traits or personality traits that people have that I just so covet or talents, you know, that I just don't have today. And God only knows what some of those things are because some of them are too deep for words. Sometimes you don't even, you can't even express it. But I believe that when we're given those bodies, and we see how personally tailored they are to who God made us to be and to what will be in eternity, it will be for us a revelation of how incredibly well-known we are. The Bible says that he knows the number of hairs that are upon our head. That's that's a pretty high number, and it's a pretty constantly changing number. The Bible says that his thoughts towards us are more in number than the sand, the grains of sand that are on the seashore. That's an incredible amount of things that God is thinking towards us. And to think of how well he knows us. And when we receive those bodies and and we understand the capabilities and the function that they will serve in his kingdom, we will say, God, I always want. How did you even know? I didn't even know, Lord, that I always wanted. And you knew. He knows. And, And so it says that God gives it a body as it pleases 
him and know this, that whatever upgrade awaits you and I on that day that we step into his presence and we receive our glorified bodies, it will be personally, customly made for you from him. And Paul tells us that in this chapter. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, that where I am there you may be also. That was as personal as the fingerprint on your finger or the facial features that make you what you look like and the personality traits that make you who you are. It will be made for you. The third thing that he tells us in verse 3 concerning our glorified bodies, or the third thing, it's actually in verse 38, is that each of us will get our own body. And I don't want you to miss that. Notice what he says there. He says, to every seed his own body. And sometimes we get this idea, or we can get this idea in this um, kind of mystical um, type of, uh, of thing that, okay, well, we're all in Christ, and so someday we're all just going to kind of like float up like lights, and we'll all kind of be in his one body, and, you know, maybe I'll get to be the thumbnail or something like that, and, you know, part of this whole thing. No, 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 that, that's not a biblical picture of what the resurrection of the dead is like. Every seed will get their own body. You will have the ability to express yourself. We'll look at that a little bit more later on in the chapter. The fourth thing that he tells us in verses 39 and 40 um, is that the bodies that we, we will have will be made to thrive in the environment that we will be in. Notice what he says there in verse 39 again. He says that all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts or animals, another of fishes, and another of birds. Now, each of those is vastly different, and the difference between each of those things is that they all thrive in different environments. There is a flesh of men. And so we live in, in the terrestrial, we operate, we are land creatures, we're on the ground, you know, that's where we thrive. However, there are also animals, and they're different than we are. They don't need the kind of shelter. They don't need, uh, you know, temperature control. They don't need um, certain uh, medications and different things that we need. They thrive in a different environment. They were made more for this world and all. Fishes. Fishes operate under the sea. They're in a different environment. Again, and the same thing with the birds. They thrive in the heavens. Funny, have you ever felt not at home uh, on this planet? Have you ever looked around and you see the birds and they're, you know, in the middle of winter, sometimes like right on, they'll just fly right up and they'll perch on a branch outside the winter and it's just snow is coming down. You see snow almost like gathering on the, and you think, you are so lost. You know, you missed it. When everybody went south, you should have gone. Now you're freezing to death. But he's just there. He fluffs his feathers a little bit, sings a song, er, flies away. And he lives and you go, I am so glad I'm not that bird, <laughs> you know, and, and all. And, and we see that. Sometimes you see a deer in a rainstorm, and they're just standing there in the middle of the field, and they're happy as a clam. This cold, pounding rain is hitting them. You're sitting in your car, and you're going, I'm so glad that I am not that animal right now out there in this whole thing, or, you, you know, the whole thing. And, and you look at all of these things that, that are in this world around us, and sometimes you think, what in the world was I made for? Because I wasn't made for here. <laughs> I don't thrive in this environment. You know, when it's hot, I say it's too hot. When it's cold, I say it's too cold. You know, on a perfect day, I'm like, just freeze. Let it stay just like this. But it doesn't, you know, or I get sick or something. You know, we weren't made for this. We were made for something else. We were made for heaven. And, and that should be an awakening point for some of us to realize like, oh my goodness, I'm not made for this world. We weren't made for it. We're made for something else. 
But what he's saying here is he's saying that when we get to heaven, if this is like the resurrection of the dead, that once we're there, the bodies that we will have will be made to thrive in the environment where we are. And heaven is vastly different than earth. Therefore, the body that we have now will not thrive in that environment then. We must have a new one. And so Paul brings that to the surface. Then he says, fifthly, uh, in verse 41, and this concerns the function that we will serve. He says in verse 41, he says, there is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. And the idea is behind that, that these are celestial bodies, but they serve different purposes. The sun produces light. It is a source of light and of energy and warmth and life. The moon reflects light. It doesn't produce it. It absorbs it from another source and then casts it from where it is. It also creates balance. It's in charge of tidal shifts. It does very important things that maybe we don't even fully understand the depths of all that it does, but it serves a very different function and purpose than the sun. The stars. The Bible says that the stars were put in their place by God to serve as signs and for seasons. And we know also that stars are used for the sake of charting and direction. Because they are constant in their place in the sky and predictable where they'll be in what seasons and the way the earth rotates keeps them in constant uh, um, pattern as to where they are. Stars are used, were used, and are even to this day to chart to create maps, to indicate direction, to learn where we are. And so you have light-giving light sources, light-reflecting sources, direction-giving sources. What's the idea? How does this relate to the resurrection? Here it is. It's that when we are in glory, each of us will serve different functions. We won't all do the same thing. We don't get standard-issue harps and sit on clouds and sing as we strum for all of eternity while you know the people in the fires of hell below scream and lament and wail and we're up on, on, in comfort on the clouds. It's not the idea. Is that there will be things going on. Eternity will be a vastly more expanded uh, um, expression of life than even what we have here in this world. And the place that God is preparing for us there, we will serve a function. And that function will not look like everyone else's. It will be something that God has prepared for us. And so he says... Um, that there is, uh, you know, glory of the sun, the moon, and of the stars. And then he says in verse 6, or the sixth thing, it's in the end of verse 41, he says, for one star differs from another star in glory. And the idea behind that is that we will not be the same and we will not all have the same capacity. Now, here's an interesting thing about stars, is that if you look at them from an earthly perspective, they all look pretty much the same, aside from slight variations in uh, uh, how bright they are or what color they are or if they pulsate or not. They're all little tiny dots in the sky that just look like different sized grains of sand that glow. That's what stars look like uh, from the vantage point that we are from a distance. But if you were to look up close, you would see that the difference between the stars is huge. I mean, the size difference between one star and another star is expansive. I mean, you're talking about, you know, 
billions of light years in diameter, you know, traveling at the speed of light for a billion years, you know, to get from one side of a star to another side of that star. And insane sizes in these things. You have dwarfs, small dwarfs, you have giants and red giants. And, you know, there's all these different classifications of stars, what they're made out of, what type of gases are, 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 are you know, um, fi there's fission, what, what, what is being produced in that um, reaction. And, so much variation in the stars. And, and he's saying that, listen, it's going to be the same thing in the resurrection of the dead. There's going to be so much difference between what we are, our size, our capacity, what we will be, what we will do. It's vast in, in, in the whole thing. And so he says that one star will differ from another star in glory. Now, an interesting thing about that is that you and I have a part to play in what we will be in terms of that capacity and that size or that function when we get to heaven. In Matthew chapter 25, when Jesus was talking about his second coming and, and the things that would take place after it, he said that then in those days, it will be like a man who delivered his goods to his servants because he was going on a journey. And to one of his servants, he gave five talents. To another one, he gave uh, two. And to another one, he gave one. And then he says, each one according to his several ability or each one according to, to his capacity or what it is that he was able to uh, um, reasonably manage with his energy and talents and all the rest. And so Jesus said, then he went on his way and he said, trade, invest, do your best with what I've given you and we'll reckon accounts later. And he says he goes, uh, he's gone for a while, he comes back and when he returns, he calls each of those stewards and he says, give an account of what you've done with what I've given to you. And so he calls the first and he says, what have you done with the five talents that I delivered to you? And he said, I traded with them and I received five talents more than what you started off with. I've given you a good increase on in what you invested in me to trade with. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. You've been faithful with a little. Be thou ruler over much. In Luke's gospel, he says, be ruler over 10 cities. There's some insight there into terms of what we'll be doing when we get to heaven, what, we'll, uh, what operations we'll, we'll serve in when we get there. Then he called the man who was given two talents. And the same thing, I've traded with them, I, I've given two more back. And he said again, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. You've been given, you've been faithful with a little, be ruler over much. And then the one, the person who was just given one talent. And he said, I knew that you were shrewd, reaping where you didn't sow and, and gathering where you did not scatter abroad. And he said, I was afraid. I took your talent, I buried it, I hid it in the earth. And he says, here, I, I, I brought it back to you. Here is your talent that you brought. And it says that Jesus looked at that servant and he said, you wicked servant. He said, you knew that this was the way that I was, that I wanted you to invest and trade and, 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 and use, and you buried it instead. And why didn't you at least invest it with those that are the bankers so that I could receive my own with interest at my coming? He said, take from him the one talent that he has and give it to the one that has 10. And they said, Lord, but he already has 10. And Jesus said, to him that has, more will be given. But to him that has not, even that which he has, that will be taken away. So what's the point of that whole story that Jesus told in connection with his second coming and in connection with the resurrection and our capacity there? Is that every one of us has been given talents and skills and abilities and a calling and a sphere of influence and a ministry and something or some things wherewith we can bring glory and honor to Jesus as we serve him with our lives in the here and now. 
And as we're faithful with those things, notice that each of those servants was judged by their faithfulness. What's the key word in that passage? You have been faithful with the little. It doesn't necessarily say fruitful. Fruitfulness comes from God. Faithfulness is on our end. And if we're faithful to serve God with the things that he's given us to do and the talents that we have and the opportunities that are before us, then when we stand before him one day and rewards are handed out and it's determined what we will be and our bodies are, are, are filled by our life and what we are, the body capacity or the capacity of our ability to enjoy or comprehend or operate in heaven will be different or varying based upon our faithfulness with what we had here on earth. Everyone in heaven will be absolutely full. There will be no one in heaven that says, oh, I feel like I wish I had more. You will be full. But you can fill both a sand bucket that a little kid plays with, right, on the beach, and you can also fill a water tower that supplies water to an entire city. Both of those things can be at capacity where they couldn't receive any more, but they have a very different capacity and amount that they can hold. So would to God that you and I would receive the exhortation and we would say, God, what is it that you've given me to do? And may my eternity be as rich as it can because of faithfulness to you in the things that you've given me, knowing that one star will differ from another star in glory. May we be red giants and not dwarfs when it comes to our eternal reward and what we will one day uh, be when we get to heaven. And so he finishes it in verse 42 by saying, so also then is the resurrection of the dead. Now, he goes on to give to us four things that are universal. And that is that every one of us here that will receive a glorified body will have four things in common. There's no varying in these four things. He says, first of all, he says, it is sown in corruption but it is raised in incorruption. So the first thing that is universal across the board concerning our new bodies is that they will be incorruptible. The word means unending existence. They will be immortal. That once we stand before him in heaven, we will be completely without the ability to die. Amen. It also means that we'll be pure and clean that it will be impossible for us to be corrupted by sickness or by sin or by anything that defiles or upsets or offends or you know causes us to need crutches or broken or anything of that nature, that it will be completely incorruptible. And that will be true across the board. What is that sound? Is that me? What is it? The mic? Is that better? No? <laughs> Battery? All right. He says that it will be sown in corruption, but it'll be raised in incorruption. Verse 43, it says it is sown in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. The word glory means honor or dignity or praiseworthiness. And then he says also uh, that it is sown in weakness. It is raised in power and that it is sown a natural body and it is raised a spiritual body. And so the second thing that we will be absolutely when we get to heaven is that we will be in honor. Now that blows my mind when I think about it. Because what honor do we deserve when we get to heaven? Everything that we will be and everything that we are now is is from him, right? We have nothing in ourselves. Jesus says that without me, you can do nothing. 
The Bible says that our most righteous acts are like filthy rags before God. There is nothing in us that's of any soundness at all, and everything good in us comes from him. The Bible even says that when we stand before him, we're going to cast our crowns before his feet because we're going to recognize that, hey, there's nothing in me that deserves this at all. So why am I being honored when I get to heaven? Understand that the honor that we will receive when we get to heaven is all a complete work of grace, and it's because of what Jesus did for us. I was reading with my son Riley last night um, in his picture Bible before he went to bed, and we're up at the part of his Bible where Solomon prays for wisdom. You guys know the story. God comes to him at night, and God says, ask what you will, and I will give it to you. Now, how many of us have wished that God would do that for us? And that was exactly what was going on in my mind when I read that to him last night. You know, I, I was thinking to myself, God, why in the world did you do that for Solomon? He didn't deserve it. I mean, here he was just a young kid. He had done nothing. He didn't go through all the struggles that David did and running from Saul and persevering and growing in character. I mean, this guy was born into a kingdom, raised up, given a crown, and now he's laying on his bed and God says, hey, whatever, whatever you want, just ask and I'm going to give it to you. This was really going on in my mind. I was like, God, why did you give Solomon that opportunity? And the answer came almost as quickly as I asked it. And you know what the answer was? Because of David. That's why. And constantly we read that, that when God gave promise to Solomon, he gave him those promises because of David. He says, because David walked before me in this way, therefore I will do this for you. And so Solomon was the beneficiary of David's honor. And that's exactly the honor that we will receive when we get to heaven. We'll stand before him and we'll be in a body that is so honorable. And we'll say, God, why am I in this body? What in the world is the purpose? Why would you give this to me? And his answer will be, because of Jesus. Because of what my son, your father, in a sense, your older brother accomplished on your behalf, that is why you will be held in such honor. And that's why we'll cast our crowns before him. Because we'll realize that it's nothing at all that we deserve. It's all what he has done for us. He says also there that it's sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. Power means strength and ability. How many of us long for more strength and more ability? I see these people around and, and each of us know them in our lives. I think they're, uh, they're few and far between, but just people that have almost, it seems like a ceaseless energy. Do you know someone like that? It just seems like they can go and go and go and go. And it's like their capacity is never full. They can just take on more. They can do more. They're never tired. They can stay up all night and then do it again the next day. And they're just ceaseless in their energy and in their ability to do it. I look at them and I go, how in the world do you do that? And I say, Jesus, please, just a little bit more <laughs> than what I've got, you know, because I'm certainly not one of those people. And to think that when we get there to the amount of power and the amount of strength that we'll receive, no night there, no sleeping, an unlimited capacity for us to operate eternally, what a blessing and joy that it will be. Then fourthly, it is sown a natural body, but it's raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Now that almost sounds like a paradox, doesn't it? You almost think that those two things can't go in the same same conjunction, spiritual body, because spiritual implies spirit, body implies physical. And what he's saying is you put those two things together is that it will be spiritual, but it will yet still be a body, is that there'll be something physical or visible or tangible about it 
though it is custom made for heaven and not for earth. It'll certainly be an upgrade, absolutely. And so that is what each of us will be. We will be incorruptible. We will be in honor or glory. We will be raised in power and we will have a spiritual body. And so then he goes on to explain that a little bit in verse 45. He says, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam, that's Jesus, was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy, that's Adam. The second man is the Lord from heaven. And as is the earthy, that's Adam, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, that's Jesus, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. So concerning the body, the type of body that we will have, that just like you and I now are descendants of Adam, and you can prove that because our bodies are the same as his was, that when we come into eternity, our bodies will be like the body of Jesus after he rose from the dead. And so as we think about that and we consider um, the type of body that Jesus had when he was risen from the dead in his disciples' psalm, we know that it was immortal. We know that it was physical. He said to Mary, touch me, Mary. Does a, a spirit have flesh and bone? We know that it's omnidimensional because uh, when Jesus was there with the disciples, he could appear and then he could disappear. They could all be in an upper room with the door locked and all of a sudden he would be there in the midst and then he would be gone again and they would go up to Galilee and he would appear. And so he was trafficking or moving back and forth between dimensions wherein there he was visible at one moment, but then in another moment he was not. And so his body was able to travel in between dimensions, even beyond the dimensions that we understand. We know that he was recognizable. But at the same time, it was possible for him not to be recognizable. Interesting, isn't it? Remember on the road to Emmaus, he traveled for eight hours with two disciples and he taught and preached the whole time. Disciples that had walked with him and knew him and yet they didn't recognize his voice. They looked at him, but they didn't recognize his appearance. When Mary was at the tomb, it says that she saw the gardener and she supposed that he was the gardener and didn't recognize him at first. And it wasn't until she heard the voice when he said, Mary, that then she said, Rabboni, and she recognized who he was. But yet then at the same time, he could appear to the 12, and as soon as he came into the room, they didn't say, yo, who are you, and how'd you get here? They could see him, and they knew exactly who it was. And so his appearance resembled, obviously, who he had been, but at the same time, he was able to hide that in some way towards others. And so we see that in the body that we will one day have. Also, he was unstoppable. Good news, he could eat. Right? He would say, have you here any meat? And he would eat in their presence. But yet, he wasn't blood-driven anymore. What did he say to Mary? He said, I am flesh and bone. He didn't say, I'm flesh and blood. That's part of the whole problem that we have now is that we're in these blood-driven bodies. And the second the smallest little thing goes out of whack, our whole life turns upside down. And we're trying to figure out every different way to make it right. You know, get this nutrient and make sure there's this balance of carbohydrates and proteins and micronutrients and phytonutrients and you know we got to have trace minerals and vitamins we're, we're constantly trying to tweak the blood to try to make it work in its optimum way guess what no blood in heaven well there will be blood in heaven one blood in heaven his blood the forgiveness of our sins but we will no longer be flesh and blood we will be flesh and bone spirit driven and the spirit is eternal 
and that's what Jesus was in his body. And so as is the image of the fleshly or the earthly, so also will be we be in the image of the heavenly. And so he goes on now in verse 50 and he touches again the first question again that they had for, for a moment when he says, how are the dead raised up? And he brings it back around to that in verse 50. He says this, he says, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. In other words, when they asked the question, remember they said, how are the dead raised up? And Paul's answer was that it's essential that you die. The reason it's essential that you die is because the bodies that we have right now are not fit for heaven. They're not made for it. Inasmuch as corruption cannot inherit incorruption, so also these bodies cannot operate in the capacity that they will need to have in order to live in heaven and survive there. And so they've got to die. But, Paul says, and this is great, I love this, verse 51, there is an exception to the rule about death. He says, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. And that word means die. You could actually circle it and close by, just write the word die. It's King James for um, be passing away in this life. He says, we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. We must put off this body. We must inherit incorruption, but not everyone is going to die. There's an exception. What are you talking about, Paul? Verse 52. He says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound... And the dead, that is those that have already died, shall be raised incorruptible. And we, speaking of those that are still alive at the time that this happens, Paul thought that might, maybe it would include him as well. He says, we shall be changed or transfigured. We'll get our new bodies. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. And so he now begins talking about this mystery that he says, I want to show you. He says, there is one exception to this rule about death. He says, not everyone is going to die, but there will be a generation of people upon the earth that never taste death. And what's going to happen to those people is that at a specific moment, a moment that God only knows, indicated by the sound of a trumpet, there will be a raising of those that have been dead and then a transformation of all of those on earth at that time that are alive and they will be caught up to then meet the Lord in the air where he is, a catching away. It's a word that you've probably heard before. The word is a rapture, that we will be raptured up, those that are alive at that time and caught up to meet the Lord in the air. In it, And so he's saying that, listen, this is a mystery that there will be some that do not die, but they're taken out of the world at a specific moment and they will be with the Lord. You say, well, this surely is mysterious. Is this the first mention of this in the Bible? No, it absolutely isn't. Jesus brought it up in the Gospel of John when he was speaking to um, Mary at the tomb of Lazarus. Or are you speaking to Martha? And Martha said to Jesus, she said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said unto her, it's John 11, verse 25. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he goes on to say in verse 26, whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Believest thou this? 
And so even Jesus gives that there were two different people. He says, him that dies believing in me will be raised back to life. But whoever lives and believes in me, he will never die. And so there will be a generation of people that will not die upon the earth. Matthew chapter 24, verses 40 and 41. Again, Jesus speaking concerning the second coming in the last days. And he says this, he says, then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other will be left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one will be taken and the other left. And then he goes on to say, watch therefore for you know not what hour your Lord is coming. And so the Bible teaches, and it's not just in the New Testament, that there will be a generation of people on the earth that will not die. Now, he tells us a couple of things about this. He tells us, first of all, that it will be instantaneous. He uses the word in a moment, and he says, in the twinkling of an eye. That is, as you turn your head and the light catches your eye in a certain way, and it just twinkles, boom, like a fraction of a second, that that's how quickly this catching away or this uh, transformation will take place in the life. He also says that it will happen at the last trump. And again, very mysterious thing that Paul says there. And it has caused questions among Christians for hundreds of years. Is What in the world does this mean when it talks about the last trump in terms of the time, or the last trumpet at the time when the rapture will take place? And some have said, well, maybe this is the seven trumpets that we read about in the book of Revelation, that there will be seven trumpets blown by angels. And when the seventh trumpet or the last angel sounds his trumpet, that at that moment, that then there will be a catching away. The problem with that is, first of all, the book of Revelation wasn't even written for another at least 35 years after this letter is written. And you say, okay, well, that doesn't mean that Paul didn't know about the trumpets. He might have known about it because God spoke to him. Sure, maybe, but the Corinthians certainly didn't know it. And Paul's saying, I'm showing you a mystery, not reminding you of one. So it's probably not the seven trumpets that he's speaking of in the book of Revelation. There were series of trumpets that were blown at several times throughout uh, the, the biblical seasons. You know, at the Feast of Trumpets, there was over a hundred trumpets that were blown over the course of it. And the final trumpet was called the last trumpet, the Tekiah Gadola, the long blast. And some have said, well, maybe that's what he's indicating, telling us that maybe the rapture will take place on the day of the Feast of Trumpets and the last one when it happens, you know. It could be, but again, we don't know. Some have held the belief that this last trump, it speaks of the last president of the United States, that that's when it will happen, that the, the, during the, no, I'm just, I'm kidding. I, you know, the last trump, you know, no, I, sorry. oh, come on, wake up. Really? Is it, is it that boring tonight? You know, no, no, that's not what it means. I can tell you that absolutely. But what I can tell you with certainty is that what it does mean is that there will be a moment when there's a final call. And at that moment when there's a final call, there will be a catching away of those that are alive and that remain on the earth that profess Christ as their Lord. And that we will instantaneously at that moment put off this corruptible and will step into his presence. And this sinful, sin-wrecked world will be put behind us and we will stand in the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now you say, what does it mean when it says that the dead in Christ will rise first. And this has caused great confusion and great controversy amongst those that try to understand how all of this works. Because it causes some to look at it and say, does that mean that when we die, 
we go into the ground and we go into a state of soul sleep until the time that Jesus comes again. Because if the dead in Christ don't rise until this moment when the trumpet blows, then that means that all of those that have died over the past couple of hundred years or 2,000 years of church history are just somewhere waiting for the moment when the trumpet blows and they will then be raised to life. But there's a problem with that. And the problem with that is that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says these words which would contradict the idea of soul sleep. He says in verse 1 there, he says, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle, again our bodies, were dissolved or dying, then we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Speaking of the body that's to come. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. In other words, that when we get to heaven, we are not going to be disembodied spirits that are just floating around waiting for the redemption of the body. He says, for we in, or uh, sorry, it is, that is the verse, verse four. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up by life. Now he that has wrought us or created us for the selfsame thing as God, who has also given unto us the earnest or down payment of his spirit. Therefore, he says, we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, that is alive on earth in the body that we have now, that we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And so, as long as we're in this body, we're absent from God, but the moment that we give up this body, whether it be by death or by rapture, we will immediately be in the presence of the Lord, not as disembodied spirits, but we will be clothed upon with the body that's been prepared for us. You say, okay, well, that presents a problem. Because Paul said back in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians that the dead in Christ will rise first at the sound of the trumpet. So how do you reconcile dying and being immediately in the presence of the Lord with not being in the presence of the Lord until the rapture happens when the rapture hasn't happened yet? How do those two things work out? I don't know. But I do know this. I know that where God resides in eternity, that he is outside of time. Time, as you and I understand it, is something that is completely secluded to this earth that we are in right now. Time is a created thing. It's Genesis 1.1. It says, in the beginning, that's time, God created the heavens, that's space, and the earth, that's matter. And so you have three dimensions, time, space, and matter. Time was created by God in Genesis 1.1. And time, as you and I understand time, is completely related to the rotation of the sun on its axis and the revolution of the earth around the sun. One rotation is a day, one revolution is a year, and that's how we measure time. But where God resides is outside of our universe, and outside of our universe there is absolutely no time. And so what that means is this. It means that Daniel can finish his walk and lifespan on this earth and be brought out and brought into the presence of the Lord, 
Paul, the apostle, a couple of hundred years later, can finish his course and lifespan on this earth and be brought out. And that you and I can be raptured if God wills that the rapture happen in our lifetime and be brought out. And all three of us can reach the presence of God at the same moment because God is outside of time. Time is secluded to where we are. Now, I understand that that's metaphysical, that it's deep. It's very difficult for us to reconcile in our finite understanding. But it is probably how this reconciles, this idea that there is no such thing as soul sleep. He didn't buy a bride to bury her in the ground for a couple of hundred years until she finally has to come. When he comes, we'll be in his presence. And so Paul says, uh, the dead in Christ will rise. We which are alive and remain will be caught up to be in his presence. Uh, in, and thus we will ever be with him. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So, verse 54, when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death or the stinger of death that brings death is sin. And the strength of sin or the venom that, that abides within that stinger is the law. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Each of us condemned to die through our sin, that sin strengthened by the law that proves us to be damned and, and lost and separated. But through the body and blood of Jesus Christ, we are redeemed and we are raised to victory through him. Verse 58, therefore, finally, some application. Don't you love it? 57 verses of teaching, one verse of application. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, in light of the fact that the resurrection is not only absolutely true, but it is something that is awaiting the future of every single one of us. And in light of that, he says, Brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Understand this, he says, that because the fact of the resurrection is what it is and it's what you're waiting for. Be steadfast in what you believe and in the doctrine that you ascribe to. Don't be quickly swayed by those that come in and say, well, there is no resurrection or you know, we have a special teaching or ours is more, uh, more spiritual than theirs or whatever. He says, be unmovable. Set yourself in a place where you cannot be moved away from the hope that you have or persuaded otherwise of what you've been taught. And he says, and also be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Whatever it is that he's given you to do, abound within that work. Don't put it off or cast it aside. And the reason not to is he says, because that labor is not in vain in the Lord. In the first part of the chapter, he said, if there is no resurrection, then there are five things that are in vain. He said, your salvation is in vain. You've believed in vain. He says that grace is vain, the grace that was given uh, to us, or that's given to us to do his work in verse 10. Our preaching is in vain. Our faith or our belief in him is in vain. And the forgiveness of our sins is in vain. All of those things are vain if there is no resurrection. But what Paul is saying to us here is he's saying that none of those things are in vain vain. It is not in vain and it's not in vain because he rose from the dead. The musicians can come as we close uh, the service tonight. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was having a phone conversation with my father-in-law
who is recently retired. And um, during the course of the conversation, he made a comment about the fact that he is uh, retired and that he has all the free time in the world, you know, and he was kind of using that as like a dig, you know, a kind of thing to say, ha, 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 ha. And I was thinking about that the next day, um, the, you know, just that whole concept of retirement and uh, what is that like, you know, to be retired and, and the whole thing. And, and what struck me is that, is that to be retired and the glory of retirement is not in the fact that you now have all this free time and you have money and, and that you can spend it and travel and, and all that stuff. But part of the glory of retirement is that you can look back over your life up to that point and you can see something that you've produced. And so you can look at your life and you could say, well, this is what I've done and this is what I've accomplished in the time working towards my retirement. And I can look at my kids and my family and my wife and I can say that I've raised a family and I've set them off in the right direction and, and I've done something. And, and, and to be retired and to not have anything to look back upon and say that I've built this or I've done this or accomplished this has got to be a little bit unsatisfying. Even though you've you know, maybe made it to that place where you no longer have to work, if you haven't done anything up to that point, then what is the glory of that? There's no satisfaction in it, or at least the satisfaction is greatly diminished. And then I began to think, what will it be like when we get to heaven, if we're there and, and we have a crown and we're retired, we're in our rest, we're in our glorified state, it's what we made it for. And, and we're there before God and we're holding this crown, but as we look over the spectrum of our life, we see it for what it was and we say, I didn't really accomplish anything. I'm here in heaven. I've got a, a crown that's been given to me, an honor that's been bestowed upon me that I didn't earn, that it's all of Jesus. But there's nothing that I did for his namesake or that he used me to accomplish or that I allowed him to use me to do to accomplish that's of any satisfaction now. And we'll look across from where we are and we'll see David. And David will be there and he'll have his crown and we'll look at him and we'll say, man, he slew the giant. And he persevered through the years when he was waiting for the kingdom and, and, and when he was waiting for Saul to either die or catch him and didn't know what was going to happen. And he came to the point where he became the king and he was the gold standard amongst the kings. He accomplished something for the name of the Lord. We'll look across and we'll see Daniel and he'll have his crown and he'll be on the ground just like us, casting his crown before God. But we'll look at him and we'll say, but he stayed up all night. And he waited for the answer until God showed him what the king's dream was. And then he spared not just his friends, but he spared all the wise men because he had the answer. And he held the torch, the lamp for Israel for three generations while they were there in Babylon. A leader and upheld. There was something that he accomplished within his life. There was something real. We'll see Nehemiah on the ground, the same as us, casting his crown. God gave me a voice that doesn't need a mic. But we'll look at Nehemiah, and there he'll be. And he, he, he was there. He persevered through that difficult time when there was oppression and persecution and poverty and weakness and discouragement. And he saw the people reestablished and the kingdom rebuilt in his days. We'll see Ruth and Esther, and we'll see Abigail, and we'll see Timothy's mother and Timothy's grandmother that took the circumstances that were dealt to them in their life and they made the most of them for the name of God and they raised up the next generation and set them in a course to seek, seek God and change the world through what they did because of God what gave them to do. 
And I know that I don't want to be there in that day and either have no crown to cast before him because I lived my life like there was no resurrection even though I profess it with my mouth. Or to have something small but to look and realize and say, but God, I really did absolutely nothing when it came to your name. Now before you get discouraged and say, well, that's me, because I'm discouraged, like, oh, that's me. I really do believe that David will feel that way. That he'll say, God, I'm casting this crown, but what did I really do within my life? Because everything you gave me was ultimately from you anyways. I know that Paul will feel that way. I know that Nehemiah, Daniel, the great women of the Bible that will all feel that way. But here's the challenge that this chapter presents to you and I tonight. And what Paul's closing admonition is for us is he says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Don't take for granted the fact that God has given you something to do. Don't take for granted the fact that there is a gifting and a calling in a period of time in human history in which we've been placed in this world. And you've been given a sphere of influence with those you live around and those whom you're related to and those whom you work with and those whom you're linked with in a church body. And don't waste the opportunities that God has given you, but invest everything you can in serving him and seeking first his kingdom because it's not in vain in the Lord. It will prove worth it in the end. So may God give us a vision, not just for our lives now, but for that which is to come. And may everything that we're about be about his business and for his glory. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you tonight as we see this most challenging and encouraging chapter. And we ask you, Lord, that you would stir up in us faith, a gifting, a vision, and the strength to do what you've given us to do in our day. We rejoice tonight, Lord, that everything that we do will always be by grace, always be empowered by you and prepared for you ahead of time. But may we never come short or miss out, Lord, on what you have for us. We thank you, Lord, for what you've done and what you're doing for us. We pray, Lord, that each of us would receive a full reward. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen. Let's stand.